time I spoke, I sort of did a part one about talking about what is church. And, um, and then I said, the Lord willing, next time I will continue this. And it's a good thing I said the Lord willing because then Kurt got a hold of me and said he and Kathy were going to be here. And I said, oh, do you want to speak? And at a moment's notice, he did. It's nice when you know people like that. And it was really good to hear from him. Did you enjoy that? He, it was very encouraging, right? Very encouraging word. Um, so I just uh, want to continue for as long as God has us looking at this whole, revisiting this idea of what is church. And um, be sure to listen to the sermon from two weeks ago. I called it Church Planting 101 and just really talked about, and, and I, I pretty much kind of, you know, we were pretending that you all were our church planting team, and we were acting as though we were starting from scratch, and this was our manual, and we were talking about, okay, what kind of church are we going to plant here? So make sure you listen to that, please. I feel like that's, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to promote, I don't like promoting my own sermons, but I do want to promote a word that I think will strengthen us and help us understand who God wants us to be. Um, so I'm going to continue with that today. I guess I could call this church planting 102. <laughs> um, and so I have an illustration again, and I'm, I'm wondering, if I were to ask you, as you see, I've got this plant, and I just lost another leaf. It's looking pretty bad. I wonder who could tell me, who could figure out why this plant is looking so bad and why it's going to be really bad, like, within the next two days. Anybody want to venture to guess? I watered it. It's well watered. I kept it by a window. It's had light. No, I don't think it had too much water. I made sure I drained it, took it out of the wrap. What's that? Needs love. <laughs> What's that? What's root bound mean? I'm not a gardener. Okay, no, that's a, that's a good guess. That's a good guess. Anybody else? No, no. I mean, I, I think people keep these around for... It, it definitely could have been around longer. I, I, I'm, I'm confident of that. What's that? <laughs> Why is this plant looking so shriveled? It's had water. It's had light. Um, it was not outside. It was not frozen. It's been by a window. All right. Uh, no. No, I don't think so. No, no. Uh, I usually don't fertilize my poinsettias. But... Mm, the good guess. All right, you want me to just tell you? What's that? You want me to just tell you? What? It's not fake. It is definitely not a fake. I don't know where you could find a fake poinsettia that looks like this. That's, that's creative. That's very, all right, I will just tell you. I will just tell you. I'll tell you. The reason this plant is looking so unhealthy is because it has no roots. It is a cut piece of plant that I stuck in the dirt. <laughs> after it had been watered, after it was healthy for a while, then I changed things up a bit for my illustration. I read a quote 
um, by a, a man named, um, ah, let me find that. He is a, an expert, quote unquote, on church planting. And his name's Neil Cole. And he's talking about how he, he was the pastor of this huge church, right, like a mega church. And he, he's talking about where it all went wrong, how it ended up being very unhealthy and not at all functioning like the church is supposed to function. And this is what he said, quote, we planted a worship service and a kids ministry. We planted a church when all along we should have planted the seed of the kingdom of God. So I like this illustration because I think this is what is happening and the American church. I think you have churches that for a while look really good. They look really healthy. They're bright and flashy and they're bold and colorful and they look like they have a lot of things going for them, but the reality is they were never really there was never a root system. There was never a seed planted in the soil first that created a root system so that the plant would would remain healthy for as long as it was supposed to be a plant. And so in the end, eventually what you end up having is a church that becomes very unhealthy because there's no root system, because the right seeds were never planted. And so, you know, I've been, you know, I've, I've, our numbers have been down, and it's, it's caused me to really step back and say, okay, all right, what are we doing? Lord, what do you want us to be? What, are we missing something? And you know what? I just, I go back to this, like we did two weeks ago. I just go back to the word of God, and I look in here, and I see these seeds that, that grow into a healthy plant. And I just really think it's as simple as following this and obeying the word of God and planting kingdom seeds. And I'm going to talk about that today. Uh, and the Lord willing, next Sunday. Uh, this man, Neil Cole, also said, the church is the, the byproduct of the kingdom of God. Think about that. For three years, Jesus preached the kingdom of God, and he showed what that looks like. He simply lived sacrificially. He touched lives. He gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he said, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And out of that seed the church was born. The church was planted. So the church is the byproduct of the kingdom of God. And if we don't start there as a church, if we don't start with the message of the kingdom of God to each other and to this community, a message that says the kingdom of God is here and we are going to model, we're going to demonstrate to you who that king is and what he's like. See, that's the seed, that's the DNA. And that's where we have to start. And if we don't start there, yeah, we'll plan a church and we'll do, and we're doing a lot of things right. I mean, we got a lot of good things going on here, but eventually... This is what we become. And so I'm, I'm really asking God to help us like be that healthy plant. There's a verse in Ephesians that talks about, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, look, I want you, you all, he's writing to a church. He says, I want you all to be rooted and grounded. Do you hear that? Rooted 
and grounded in love. See, that's the DNA. That's the DNA. Rooted and grounded in love so that you can comprehend with all the saints, because we need each other to comprehend the love of God, what is the width and length and depth and height of God's love. God's love is so multidimensional. You realize that? That's why we need each other to comprehend the dimensions of God's love. It's deep, it's high, it's wide, and it's long. And and God's love involves truth-telling and burden-sharing and burden-bearing and trusting each other and being transparent and vulnerable and all these dimensions, and we need each other to comprehend that. And he goes on in the same part of Ephesians 3, and he says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. See, I'm not just interested in a bunch of head knowledge about church growth. I've done that. I grew up watching that happen. And I grew up seeing a lot of churches that for a while looked really good by all appearances, but through my experience... It was really ended up like this. And so I want to tell you a story of what can happen when you have a church that's not rooted and grounded in gospel kingdom and the kingdom of God and, and, and the love that is, the, you know, it says, it says somewhere else, you have been transferred into the son of his love, I think in, I think in Colossians. I have a friend... One of my closest friends, her name's Diane. A couple of you probably remember her from years back. She grew up here in Elmira. And I want to tell you her story because I'm free to tell it now because she just shared it publicly on a podcast. So this is public. It's out there. And it just is, it should be a wake-up call for the church. But Diane, let me tell you about my dear, dear friend Diane. She... um, She and her husband went into the ministry. They went to seminary. They first became youth pastors, like you start out. Start out at the bottom of the totem pole, youth pastors. And and then they had their firstborn child was born with Down syndrome. And it was extremely difficult. And so, um, you know, that 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 was tough. Um, all, back then, there, we didn't know as much about special needs kids. They, they called them mongoloids if they had Down syndrome. And, you know, it, it was, she talks about being in a local church body and how there were individuals who reached out to her and sat with her in her pain and devastation, you know, and, and came and visited her and checked in on her. But in large part, she felt very alone and... and um, uh, not understood, and, and it was hard to understand, especially back then. Um, so that was one sort of tragedy that happened in her life. Um, and then sometime after that, as a young mom, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and it became severe. And to this day, her hands literally look like this, just like that. She cannot open her hands. Her toes are turned at a 90-degree angle. And so she has spent um, much of her life, if not most of her life, in a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. So she's got this special needs child who has become extremely difficult. Some Downs kids end up being very sweet and happy and compliant. 
and then others go in a, in a very different direction. And that's what John did. Um, very angry, very bitter, uh, extremely difficult. And so if those two things were not enough, having a special needs child who is very challenging, dealing with a chronic illness involving a lot of pain, three years ago, she came home from getting groceries and she called for her husband who usually would come out of the house to help her bring the groceries in and she couldn't find him. And she looked all over the house and then she looked outside and walked around the house and she found his body lying on the ground. He died of a heart attack, completely unexpected. He had been walking five miles a day. By all appearances, even according to his doctor, he was in great shape. And here he's dead. And he's the executive pastor of a huge church of over a 1,000 people. So the police comes, and Diane's on the ground, weeping over her husband, devastated. And the police says to her, well, is there a pastor you can call? And she says, that's my pastor. So now she's, got, she's alone. She's trapped in a home. She cannot leave this 40-year-old child She's still got this chronic illness, and she's now a widow. And she tells about her first Sunday back to the megachurch where her husband was the executive pastor. You know, because in that kind of a church, you've got the pastoral care pastor, the teaching pastor, the missions pastor, the kids pastor, and the executive pastor. And, and, and Mick did everything. <laughs> he really worked hard. <clears throat> so... She goes into church, and she walks into the foyer, and she says that she feels totally lost. No idea where to go, what to do, where to sit. And this is the church where she was the pastor's wife. She was absolutely and completely alone. Not literally, but that's how she felt. And so she wasn't sure if she should sit on the front row where the first lady usually sat because her husband wasn't there. And so she asked someone, well, can I sit with you? And this lady said, yeah, come sit with me. So she sits down and she looks down the row and she's like one or two, two or three rows back. And she realizes all these ladies in this row with me are widows. I have been relegated from pastor's wife on the front row to widow's row from one Sunday to the next. And she spent that next year sitting there weeping every Sunday, missing her husband, but also wondering, who am I? Where do I fit now? And where is everyone Again, this is, this is her story that this is a public story, so I'm not, this is already, she's sharing this story publicly. But I watched her, and I've been watching her, walk this journey of going through tragedy and devastation as part of a local church. Being forgotten, Completely, like really, overnight, forgotten, really forgotten. Maybe a couple texts or phone calls for the first couple weeks, and then nothing. 
Eventually, there was a time where her gutters were clogged with leaves. And she put out on Facebook, is there anyone who can come help me with my gutters? They're clogged with leaves. I need them cleaned out. This is a widow. Church of over 1,000 people. Not a single response. Her friend who lives here in this area saw that on Facebook. He said, I'll be down in a couple weeks. I'll take care of your gutters. He came down from New York State to Florida. Did I say she lives in Florida? She lives in Florida. She lives in Florida. He went all the way to Florida to take care of this widow's gutters because there was no response from her home church. And then I watched again when the big hurricane happened. What was that hurricane that happened last year? Yeah, I, I watched again, and I saw her crying out for help. No generator. And I saw the lack of response. And, you know, I'm, I don't say all of that um, pretending that I or we have it all together and we're so much better. It was a wake-up call to me. It, it, it makes me want to care more. It makes me realize, you know, what good, if, what good is it if you have the church with all the stuff, you know, with, with, with the cool, awesome sounds and, you know, the programs and all the ministries and the decor and the state-of-the-art facility but when people are in need and they're hurting and they're alone and they're desperate and they, they don't know how they're going to survive a hurricane and no one is there, and then what do you have? James 1.27 says this, pure religion Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. See, it has to be both because we can get really good about preaching about being unspotted from the world, but we cannot leave off the other half of what James calls pure and undefiled religion to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble. And there's so much more in the word that admonishes us to take care of widows and orphans, for instance. So as I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, what are we doing? God, what kind of church do you want us to be? And, and, and what kind of growth are you after? It's made me realize, I hear stories like this, and it's made me realize, I want to grow in love. I want to grow um, in our mindset of having a kingdom mindset. I want, to, I want us to grow from healthy seed so that we can be that strong, healthy plant that's rooted and grounded in love. Because I grew up in the church culture that my friend Diane was part of. I grew up in Florida, been there, done that. I know exactly what we should do if we want to grow in numbers. I know. 
And I could exhaust all my energy doing those things. I know, I, I mean, I could tell you, I could give you a very specific list of all the things we would need to do if we wanted to grow in numbers. And you know what? We would. And we would have what we call transfer growth. A revolving door of people looking for the next coolest, hottest thing in town. But you know what? I want to know that, that we're cared for that we're a family, that, that every single person here belongs and knows they're not going to be ignored or neglected. That's the kind of growth I'm interested in. Pastoral care is um, a hot topic among church planters and church growth experts. I read a headline by popular church growth blogger Carrie Newwolf, and the headline said something, and you'll see this all over the place. This headline is repeated a million times over in so many words. It says something like, pastoral care is the biggest hindrance to church growth today. Pastoral care. If you don't know what that is, pastoral care means taking care of people, practically speaking, visiting them, shoveling their, their driveway. Right? Visiting the sick, bringing people meals, checking in, making sure they're okay, phone calls, cards, flowers, you know, sitting down at lunch. How are you doing? <clears throat> and church growth experts tell us that that is the biggest hindrance to church growth. Well, I agree with that and I don't agree with that, and I'll tell you why. It's kind of like I think of pastoral care as the in the old days. I don't remember this because I'm too young, but in the old days, you know, they had the town doctor who had the black doctor bag, the physician's bag, and he was the town doctor, and everybody knew him, and he actually cared about your health, like he genuinely had a vested interest in your health, right? And he would come to your door, and, and he knew all the kids by name, and he would take the time to visit with you, and he genuinely wanted you better, I think of pastoral care that way. And just like the town doctor, it's, a it's, a, it's dead, it's, a, it's very archaic. It's an old-fashioned, antiquated, it's a lost art visitation, personal visitation. You know, now you've got to go seek out a doctor, and uh, if you don't like him for whatever reason, well, there's a million others you can pick from. And it's the same with churches. You know, if that worship leader doesn't wear skinny jeans and you're looking for a worship leader that wears skinny jeans, you, go, you can go find that. Sorry, Frank doesn't qualify. I get... <laughs> One of the most influential books I have read that has helped me as a pastor is Eugene Peterson's book called The Pastor. And he talks about how when he was in seminary, a young seminarian, young Bible school student, he had the privilege of being mentored by someone who was known at that time as being one of the greatest preachers in the country. His name was George Arthur Buttrick, Dr. Buttrick. He was the minister at the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in uh, New York City. And Eugene Peterson got to be mentored by him. And so once a week, Eugene and other seminarian students would gather in Dr. Buttrick's home in his living room, and they would sit on the floor and just ask him questions, whatever they wanted to ask about the ministry. And one night, one of those young seminary students asked Dr. Buttrick this, 
how do you go about preparing for sermons? And this is what this great, accomplished preacher said. Now, this guy, he had lectured at Yale University and Ivy League colleges around the country. And this is how he answered this young Bible school student, quote, for two hours every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, I walk through the neighborhood and make home visits. This is how he prepares his sermons. There is no way that I can preach the gospel to these people if I don't know how they are living, what they are thinking, and what they are talking about. Preaching is proclamation, God's word revealed in Jesus, but only when it gets embedded in conversation, in a listening ear, and responding tongue, only then does it become gospel. I can tell you that by personal experience, I have found that I can spend a day polishing an outline. I knew how to do that. I took speech in college. I know how to make a good sermon outline. At least, I mean, I don't know if I actually do, but I know, I know how it's done. Or I can spend a day visiting with people, and I can tell you, coming away from pastoral care leaves me a, th- a million times more with a sense of being filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to preach the word all day long over sitting down at my computer and typing out a sermon. See, you don't need to know the word of God here. You need to get in touch with humanity and know in here what God is giving you for that person that will bring them life. That's gospel. That's the seed of the kingdom of God. That is a plant with roots. That is not just fluffy leaves that are going to shrivel and fall off. So, that is what Eugene Peterson said about pastoral care and the best way to prepare a sermon. And yet, and yet, here's the mistake we make. See, there's like two extremes I see in the church, in, in the American church today. I see this, um, this very uh, progressive sort of seeker-friendly idea that says, get rid of pastoral care. You don't have time to take care of people. You got to spend your time marketing your church. And making it attractive so that people will want to come. You gotta work on the aesthetics. You gotta work on the sound. You gotta work on building up the kids' ministry. You gotta put the water slide in the kids' program to make it more exciting because you're competing with the church down the road or whatever it is. See, that's one extreme. And then people like my friend Diane get forgotten, they get lost in a crowd, and you you end up with this big event with a speech performance, and there's really no ministry happening, and it looks and feels nothing at all like family, which is actually what the church is, by definition, family. The amazing thing about church, this is the amazing thing. God brings people together who probably a lot of times would not choose to be friends with each other if just left up to our own, and God brings people together 
And we find there's this unity of the Spirit that knits our hearts together in love. And we, come this, we become this living, dynamic organism that's with a, with a strong heartbeat. And, and we're rooted and grounded in love, and we've got life flowing through our veins, as it were. And so people come in, and, and they see our love for each other. And they say, ha, that's, that is something I've never seen before. That's why Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, by your love for one another, not by your great ability to expound apologetics, by your love for one another. This is how they will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. But then what happens, though? Let's suppose, suppose a pastor does get this vision for pastoral care and realizes, I'm never going to let go of that. I'm going to be there for the people. Well, then you have the opposite extreme, if we're not careful. All of a sudden, you've got the one doctor in town. And why did that not work? Why did it eventually die off? Because one doctor cannot heal everybody in town, Right? So then you've got the pastor who's elevated to this place, this lofty position, and everybody expects the pastor to bear the brunt of pastoral care. And you know what that creates? Carrie Newwolf used this term, codependency, and I think it's very true. Codependency between the pastor and the congregation. Where the pastor is, the pastor becomes dependent on the congregation to feed my ego. So I'm going to keep going and serving and doing and wearing myself out so that you'll keep patting me on the back and telling me how wonderful I am so that you'll want to keep me so I can keep my job. And then why am I so burned out and exhausted and need to be on drugs for anxiety? Because I'm trying to be the town doctor. And so you have people who come and sit. And they say, the attitude is, we're going to pay the pastor to do all of the ministry. We don't have that here. That's why Dave and I, that's one reason why Dave and I volunteer. Because we are ministers. We are ministers. We are the ministers. And so what would happen if the congregation caught a vision for pastoral care? What would happen if the sheep grew into this spiritual maturity in God that said, guess what? We can care for each other. We can start shepherding each other. And there's this amazing joy and reward when you do it for love's sake. When you do it for love's sake. That's so, so, so important. There's a story told about Mother Teresa. She was in Calcutta, and this young man very um, zealous, young missionary. He takes a trip from America, and he goes to Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa. And she sees this young man there working among the poor, and she says, Sir, why are you here? And he said, Well, I'm here to serve the poor and needy. And it's said that Mother Teresa said to him, Go home. You're not here for the right reason. What are you talking about? Aren't you here to serve the poor and needy? And Mother Teresa said, if you're not here to love Jesus, you will fry. That's what she said. 
But if you come here to love Jesus, um, oh, I got to find that. I have to find that. She said it so well. But if you've come here to love Jesus, you will find him dressed in the distressing disguise of the poor and needy. If I were to ask you, why are you here? Why do you come to Wellsburg Community Church every Sunday? Is it to love Jesus? Because if it's to love Jesus, he will show you how to love him through loving other people. You might say, oh, I'm not in a place. I'm not in a place to serve. I'm not in a place to reach out. Or it's not my thing. It's not my personality. It's not my bent. Can you, can you look at someone in the eyes and say, good morning. It's really good to see you. That's loving Jesus. That's letting him love people through you. Can you say to someone, can I get you some coffee? Can I help you get your plate? Can I sit here next to you? Is anyone sitting here? That's loving Jesus. It doesn't take a seminary education. It doesn't take great skill. It doesn't even take a certain personality to love Jesus. If you want to know what keeps me up at night, It's lying there thinking of all the people I can't get to. And yet, as I've just said, I'm not the town doctor. I'm not supposed to get to everyone. We are the body. We are the body of Christ. We are ministers one of another. And so I wonder what would happen if we started to realize, really realize what the church means? What would happen if we started to really see each other as family and then started to act like family and treat each other like family? When you have a relative in the hospital or in dire straits or in desperate need, usually when it's family, even if you don't like them very much, but because they're family, what do we do? We're on the phone. We're at the door. We're checking in, sending a text. How are you? How are you doing? Just wondering how you're doing. Is there anything I can do? What do you need? Hey, I'm bringing you soup tonight. Don't cook. Isn't that how we do with family? What if we started realizing, really realizing that we are family. And then what if the community caught that? What if they saw that? What if they saw this amazing, supernatural, unconditional love at work among us? And it, that became the thing that was very attractive. And people started to say, I can see how you love each other. I wish I could be a part of something like that. I don't have anything like that. What if we could really model Jesus to our community? One of the most astonishing verses that Paul writes is in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 28. He says this, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. 
and labors more abundant, and stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, and deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, and journeys often, and perils of waters, and perils of robbers, and perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, and weariness and toil, and sleeplessness often, and hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness. And you thought you've had a bad day. So this is Paul's life, his everyday normal that he's just described. And what is so shocking is what he says next. Besides the other things, which he doesn't even mention, who knows what they were, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. I read this and I think, God help me. I let the tiniest of inconveniences Keep me from deep concern for other people. And yet here's Paul just opening up his heart about his deep concern for all the churches while he is living this way. So I want to close with this. Well, one story and then a question. Back in September, uh, the girls and I, Ruth and Rebecca and I, went on vacation with Nathan and Katrina. And we were down there with their extended family. And um, we were at, on the, at the Outer Banks on the beach for a week. And it was really nice. It was, it was a, I didn't know how much I needed that sabbatical until I was there. Um, God did some things in me that were actually life-changing, permanent, during that time, right there by the ocean. God ministers to me through the ocean, just so you know. But it came around to Sunday, and you need to understand, Sundays are different for a pastor when a pastor is traveling. Um, You know, I've heard pastors of especially of very large churches say, oh, when I'm on vacation, I don't go to church because I need a break. Well, it kind of makes me wonder, is that, is what you're doing more of work for you? Like, it doesn't feel like this for me. When I'm on vacation, I'm like, I want to go to church. I want to go to church. I don't know about you. So we were down there in the Outer Banks, and I really wanted to go to church. And it was really weird. I got online that morning, early that morning. I got online. I'm I'm looking at the local churches in the Outer Banks, and there aren't many because it's a tourist spot, right? And it was so strange to realize what I would have picked based on what I saw online 20 years ago was absolutely uninteresting. I was, I, it was completely unattractive to me. All the things I saw online that would have impressed me and drew and lured me in, no interest. Nope. 
been there, done that, not what I'm looking for. It was really strange to realize that. You know what we ended up doing? All of the Smith relatives, they're part of their tribe, which is still a lot. The cousins, the aunts, the uncles, all the little kids, and the Bogdans. On a Sunday morning, we gathered under this little gazebo by the ocean. No plan, no agenda, no smoking hot band with colored lights and fog. I mean, I'm not, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just saying, what is church? What is church? And we all, one by one, just shared about God's goodness in our lives. You remember that? I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. One of the best church services I've ever been to. Attendance was small. I will never forget it. We had church. We had church. We nourished each other. We fed each other. We were family, yes, but we were family not just by blood, but by the Spirit. That is church. And so, I don't know what the future of this church looks like in the natural. I mean, if we were to have some church growth expert come in and do a consult and give us some projected growth rate and tell us what we're going to look like in five years, yeah, I have an idea of what he might say. But you know what? I really don't care. What I do care about is that we follow this that we be family to one another. That we don't have um, the overworked town doctor who really does truly care deeply, deeply. But that we become ministers one of another. It says in Ephesians Chapter 4 or 5, it says, He gave some to be pastors, some to be evangelists, some to be teachers, for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Did you hear that? For the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I ask you, how has God equipped you you, uniquely you, whoever you are, how has God equipped you to be the church, to be a part of the church? How has he equipped you? What do you love to do? What are the ways that you love ministering to people? You love sending cards, giving gifts, Greeting people, cooking, plowing sidewalks, whatever it is. And maybe you don't know. Maybe you've never even considered this question. 
But it's a really good question for someone to be a part of the family, for someone in a family. The question is, in what way are you an active, dynamic part of this family? How would God love to use the personality and giftings he has given you to be a part of this family and to show the world who is watching what it means to be the church and who Jesus is? How will God use you in reaching this community? Let's pray.